Hey, I know you're probably driving or running or cleaning the house or doing something else when you're listening to this, but look, if you're a B2B marketer and you need to start generating revenue from your marketing, then you have to check out our 12-week program, the B2B Incubator. It's built for small, in-house B2B marketing teams with limited time and budget. We give you the strategy, the templates, and the tools to start driving revenue, not just leads. So if you're ready to act on all the advice Kevin and I give you, next time you take that first sip of coffee in the morning, Make sure you head to the B2B Incubator and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort with our next one launching at the end of May 2024. Remember, the B2B Incubator, apply now so you don't miss out. We've had B2B marketing managers, CMOs, marketers in demand generals, content leads, and more all go through this program and they're currently executing the demand strategies that they've created. Some are now even contributing as much as 80% of the pipeline to their business after working through it. Make sure you check out the b2bincubator.com and apply now to start driving more demand and more revenue for your brand. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome. Today's guest is George Kudinaris. He's a quite a busy man, co-host of the B2B Playbook podcast, partner at Waves, which is a B2B marketing agency helping business owners and marketers run their B2B marketing strategy and also runs the B2B Incubator, which is a 12-week program that helps businesses implement the 5Bs framework. So we'll get stuck straight in, George. Uh, who is George Kudinaris and what did your childhood look like? Gee, that's the big question. Well, middle child, one of three. So I don't know, I guess maybe that meant I was always craving a bit of attention. Perhaps that's why I had to get into podcasting, maybe to get my voice heard a little bit more. As I just referenced, ethnic family, right? My background's Greek. So everyone's always bossing you around, which is always pretty fun. Always good to have a nice, big, connected family. And that still definitely plays into into my world today. We were just recording last week. My um, business partner and I were recording an episode of the B2B Playbook. And I re- actually record it out of my old bedroom at my folks' house. My grandmother, she comes over every day for a coffee. And she happened to come over just as Kevin and I were starting recording. And I got a tap at the window and there she was. And she expected me to make her a coffee then and there. And so I said, Kev, I'm sorry, it's coffee time with you. Yeah, whatever you're doing, we're just going to put on the back burner because it's coffee time with you. Yeah. So you can't say no to you. No, you can't say no to you. Yeah. Growing up, to be honest, I never thought I was like that Greek. I didn't choose my friends based on when they're Greek, but just the fact that I um, see my yeah most days and she brings over, you know, homemade spanakopita a couple of times a week. That makes me think I'm pretty Greek. Yeah. I mean, look. Going back through school, I guess I was always pretty studious. I went to a selective school, so I had to work pretty hard just to keep up and and not feel stupid. And yeah, it was always pretty lucky, to be honest, to have very, very supportive parents, which not not, not everyone gets to say they have. So you think you had a, a pretty normal Australian childhood by the sounds of it, pretty stable, all that sort of thing? Yeah, I'd say so. Absolutely. I think I'm very lucky. To, to be in the environment that I've been in. It's always been very supportive. There's always been a lot of people to lean on. And I think that's just the nature of a, of a big ethnic family. So quite lucky. Yeah, just thinking back to my childhood, um, all my Greek and Italian friends, they all had that, that massive family network of 35 cousins and all the different relatives. And when they did get married, they'd have a thousand people at their wedding. So uh, it's it's quite different to some of the, I suppose, uh, Australian weddings that you go to. Yeah, they're pretty wild and everyone just seems to multiply more and more. My grandfather was the first one to come over from Greece originally. He was the first Kudinaris. And now every year we have the annual Kudinaris picnic and the number of people turning up just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And the last one, there was probably over 150 people there. So the clan is expanding. Did you make the coffee at the picnic made or yeah. else's shop? <laughs> uh, fortunately, it was at my auntie's, so I wasn't on coffee duties that day. <laughs> What's your coffee of preference? Uh, 
I like to ask people that question because I'm a bit of a coffee stump. So. Okay, good. Well, I won't feel like a yuppie then in saying almond cappuccino, but I do make it myself and I can dabble in some latte art. So I do love a good coffee. I'm a huge fan of good coffee. What's yours? I've actually recently been converted to oat lattes. So I was always just a double shot latte and now I've gone to oat milk and I never thought I would, but it's actually really, really good. It just brings out the coffee flavor a lot more, I find anyway. So. Yeah, wow. I see that's all the range in London. I visited my brother recently and it was just everywhere in London. I couldn't get away from it. Some good, some bad. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend drinking oat milk any other way because it's, it's, yeah, pour it down the drain. But in a coffee, for some reason, it's really good. <laughs> all right. So what's something... Just to humble you a little bit, what's something you suck at you have to do regularly and you wish you could be 10 times better at? There's plenty of things. Golf would be one for sure, but <laughs> not particularly practical for this chat. I just find that so hard. As you said in the introduction, I'm, I'm doing quite a lot of things, struggling a lot of different things at the moment. And it's really hard when you're running a small business, as you would know yourself, but it's so essential. So fortunately, my business partner is really good at it, Kevin. The guy's a total freak. I mean, he even schedules into his calendar monthly a time for him to go through and clear photos that he doesn't want in his photo album anymore. Like that's the kind of psychopath that he is. But that's rubbed off on me. And he's got me reading a whole lot of, you know, self-help books, things like Atomic Habits to just try and get better at it. Yeah. So you guys compliment each other a little bit, do you? He sort of lifts you up where... You need to be lift up and vice versa. Yeah, I'd say so. I think we're pretty lucky that we complement each other in that way. We both, I think, align in a very similar on the fundamental non-negotiable things, just about like our values as, as people, how we like to operate a business. We both want to do things that are really long-term, not go money grabbing in the short term. And I think they're the really important things. And fortunately beyond that, I feel like we do complement each other quite well. It's always a good thing to have with a with a business partner. You don't want to be, I suppose, really good at one area or both of you really good at one thing. It's good to have someone who you can compliment and lift you up where, you know, you're a little bit weak or they're a little bit weaker. So Yeah, yeah. Look, it's it's very lucky. It's great. He definitely helps me be better every day, which is fantastic. And hopefully I'm doing something to help him. It was one question I didn't plan to ask, but I was thinking of it during the week. So I'm going to ask you now and sorry to put you on the spot, but, and I haven't heard this, this may have been mentioned in one of your podcasts before, but how did you and Kevin meet and like, how did that whole relationship come to be? Yeah. So Kevin and I originally met at boutique agency that we both worked at called Sparrow. Now going before that, Kevin and I were both corporate lawyers. We were at university at the same time together, but hadn't heard of each other. Kevin had left the law world a little bit before I had, maybe six months or so. And when I was sort of at my breaking point in law and I just decided I had to go and do what I really wanted to do, which was marketing, I literally just Googled top marketing agencies in Sydney. And fortunately, Sparrow, this boutique agency at the time, had really good SEO. And on their profiles of people who worked there, Kevin was listed there. And I saw he was an ex-lawyer and I thought, well, if there's someone who's going to give it to me straight about what it's like to work in an agency, it's going to be another former jaded lawyer. Former lawyers tend to look out for each other because we feel like we've been through the muck and come out on the other side. So <laughs> that was my introduction to Kevin. Yes, we met up one morning. He gave me the lowdown on what it's like and said I should come across and work in his team. And that's where we ran a team together for a couple of years. Oh, nice. And then... So just going back to the start of your business journey, I noticed just looking through your LinkedIn profile that uh, you had an online printing business, you Printex. What was the story behind that? And what's probably like the biggest learning or the biggest lesson that you got from that venture? Yeah, that was something I started with my brother and my cousin way back in maybe 2012. So just while I was at uni, I was very much enamored with that whole startup world. And I just really wanted to have my own business and be part of that. At the time, we were kind of searching for an idea. And a lot of people were predicting that the world was shifting to the iPad and native apps were going to be a big way of doing business in the future. And we saw that there was a gap for, I guess, design. 
design of physical products like letterheads, business cards, invitations. And we thought it'd be awesome to try and get that first mover advantage to the iPad and try and democratize design a bit. And this was well before we'd heard of anything like Canva. We certainly didn't have the skills or the know-how between us or the vision. But, you know, we'd crowdsource designs, icons, a huge library of fonts. Things could then be professionally printed, delivered to people's door. And look, we never generated enough orders to break even, but we took a ton out of it. For me, that was the biggest realization that I had no idea how to do good marketing. I didn't know what marketing was. Looking back on it, I realized that we didn't really design it with like an ideal customer in mind. You know, there were direct to consumer applications, but then there were also B2B angles that we probably could have tackled. So we just hadn't nailed that down. Working with family can be really hard. Working with your brother and your cousin when you're in your young 20s, and I think my cousin was in his teens as well, you know, that can be really, really challenging. And uh, to be honest, like that experience probably gave me a bit of a chip on my shoulder to just want to prove to myself that I can do this. And that's when I knew I always had to get back into marketing. And I've always felt like I have to, to build my own successful business. That's an awesome little story. So could we say that Canva maybe stole your idea and then piggybacked on top of it? <laughs> I'd, it? I'd love to say that. <laughs> but I think uh, literally just as we, just as the iPad app launched, we saw the announcements from Canva and then we read into Melanie Perkins' story, saw that she'd been in this game for ages and she had some serious people that she was working with. And to be honest, we just didn't know what we were doing. We had so much to learn and probably weren't as committed and didn't have the time to really see it through. So very big learning experience for the three of us. Yeah, Canva's a, it's an amazing tool. I mean, I know I use it from time to time. I'm sure you've probably used it a fair few times in the past as well. It's uh, It's got everything now, so you can edit videos and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's part of my daily workflow. I'm so glad that they've done what they've done because it makes my life a lot easier. Is that where you create your squiggles that uh, you've been posting recently? <laughs> <laughs> I actually do those on a mixture of OneNote, just Microsoft OneNote and Photoshop as well because I found a good, good chalk pencil that I like to draw with. So yeah, not on Canva yet. Okay, gotcha. So... You were speaking about before you were a lawyer and then you decided to go back into the marketing world. So what was the story behind that or what was sort of the driving force that made you say, no, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore and I want to pursue marketing again? I fell in love with marketing while I was at uni and I didn't actually study it. I just came across SEO and I was like, wow, I cannot believe that as someone so young, you can actually have a tangible impact on a business through something like SEO. It just kind of felt like magic. So I got pretty deep into SEO while at uni, ranked a couple of Amazon affiliate sites around some pretty niche things. Didn't make too much money, but just a bit of pocket change and thought it was pretty awesome. But then I guess I was pretty fortunate that I landed a law job in quite a competitive environment just coming out of university. And I thought I owed it to myself to give it a go, see what all the fuss was about. And I lasted a bit over a year. And it was, to be honest, everything that I expected it to be. It was extremely long hours. I found the work to be quite boring. I found that the the path to climb that ladder at the top was really, really long. And I didn't really see the rewards there at the top either. I mean, yes, there were monetary rewards, but the partner was there working every hour that I was there, you know, 80, 90 hours a week and more. and it just wasn't what I wanted to do. I just didn't find it fulfilling. So we were in the midst of like a really long trial. I think it went on for four to six weeks. Got home at 2 a.m. one night from doing the trial. Had to be back up at in the office at 7 a.m. And I just found myself breaking down in the shower, just in tears. That's not something I do a lot. So I just kind of thought, hold on, there's something really, really wrong here. Yeah, took three weeks of leave and gave myself that amount of time to go and find a job at a marketing agency and just go and do what I really wanted to do. So it was like a proper burnout moment by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah, I was super burnt out. And look, some people might look at that and go, 
well, you know, you're only at it for a year. Maybe it would have changed. It would have got better. But I just knew that it absolutely wasn't for me. And to be honest, I think a year is a really long time to spend doing something, you know, nearly 24-7 that you just don't love doing. Was that just something that you went into university because that's what your friends did or was it something your parents wanted you to do or was that just I can earn a good income? What was the motivation originally? Yeah, I guess probably a bit of an expectation coming out of the school that I went to, probably a bit of expectation coming from the family as well. You know, I think parents are naturally going to feel a bit happier when you have a job that maybe has like a proven path to, you know, what we would traditionally call like a good safe life. So I think I felt the need to at least, I mean, for myself and for them, give it a go and see, is it something that I wanted to do? Yeah, I suppose friends and family always like to tell people that they know someone who's a, a doctor or a lawyer. So it's uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's one of those sort of name droppers, isn't it? Well, that's right. That's right. And I mean, honestly, I think we can get into this a bit later. I just don't think marketing has that respect that I think it can draw. I mean, in my opinion, marketing is so core to the, the function of a business. And I think some people have missed that. And I think we've got a lot of work to do in educating people on what marketing is truly capable of and what good marketing looks like. And I think it should be on its way to becoming a very well-respected profession because it puts in place foundations for a business that very few other people can do. All right, folks, quick breather here. In my time in B2B marketing, generally I've come to realize that there are just certain tools that can be an absolute game changer. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about Leadfeeder. Uh, it's a tool that helps you cut through the data and turn those website visitors into solid leads and opportunities for your business. Leadfeeder shows you which companies are checking out your site tracking their behavior, and it integrates all of this with your CRM. And the result is it's basically like a secret weapon for targeted lead engagement, and it really makes it easier for your team to convert website traffic into sales. Head to leadfeeder.com, give it a free demo, and you'll also get a free extended premium trial when you let the rep know that you found out about Leadfeeder through the B2B Playbook podcast. That's leadfeeder.com. Okay, check it out. Back to the show. Yeah, absolutely agree. I was speaking to another marketer the other day and he was talking about just sometimes marketing gets a bad rap because it is there is literally no barriers to entry. Like you can slap together a website and say you're a marketer and people will pay you money. And you can say, Oh, this, you know, this marketing strategy didn't work or the or whatever the case may be, and people just churn through customers. And unfortunately, that's a lot of what you see sometimes. I mean, you might be able to delve into a little bit deeper of your thoughts about that, but um, yeah, it was an interesting conversation we were having. Yeah, look, there's a lot of charlatans in the industry, and it's something that I think is really difficult to do well at scale. But because there's such a gap between the people who are doing the work and the clients who need that work done in the understanding of what should be done and what good marketing looks like, then I think there's probably a few too many people who take advantage of that. So you've got your own marketing agency called Waves. Can you explain firstly what you guys do? Yeah, to be honest, we're actually retiring Waves. So Waves is basically myself acting with some freelancers, acting as a fractional CMO for a handful of businesses. It was something that originally we looked at turning into an agency that was niched down in B2B, but we quickly realized that in order to do really good work as an agency in the B2B space, there are some things that just have to be done in-house that most agencies are promising that they can do for people. And to do them well, you have to almost act in a full-time capacity. I mean, things like truly deeply understanding the customer, defining who your ICP is, forming your dream 100, then creating seriously helpful, educational, entertaining content programs. I think all of that stuff really needs to be done in-house if it's going to be done well. And Kevin and I got into this business to 
sleep well at night to do a good job for people. And so why there were definitely opportunities for us to scale up on that agency side and take on more clients there, we just didn't believe in it enough because we just felt like there was a, too much of a gap in terms of what people were expecting us to do and what we could actually do. So I suppose that's a good segue to talk about the B2B Playbook podcast and also the B2B Incubator. So can you talk us through firstly the podcast and then maybe have a chat about what the Incubator does? Yeah, sure. So the B2B Playbook podcast is Kevin and my way of sharing the resource that we wish that we had when we got into B2B marketing. So to take it back a bit, when I left the agency to start my own business and we niched down in B2B, we realized there was that huge gap between what we were doing agency side and then what actually needed to be done in-house to build real sustainable B2B growth. So Kevin and I, when we got into it, just out of necessity and interest, we searched for a guide for what sustainable B2B growth should look like. Maybe it was the lawyers in us, but we thought like there has to be an end-to-end guide of what to do and when. So we came across tactics, disparate pieces of strategy on sites like, you know, HubSpot's blog. We read a ton from marketing leaders like Seth Godin, Russell Brunson. We connected with and learned from the best in the industry on platforms like LinkedIn. And all the while we were testing what works with our clients. And then we ended up realizing that, hey, we've actually got a framework for sustainable B2B growth. Let's give it a name. We called it five B's. And that's what we're committed to sharing on the B2B Playbook podcast every week. And to be completely frank, Jacob, the five Bs, our framework, we're not reinventing the wheel, right? We're probably just using our skills that we were given originally as lawyers to take what is out there and piece it together in a way that actually makes more sense in a logical, cohesive way. So that's what we're sharing is that resource that we wish that we had. And yeah, it's awesome to do. So you just want to take us through quickly for listeners what the 5Bs framework is, what they are? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there's 5Bs or five steps to the framework. The first three are really fundamental and they are called be ready, be helpful and be seen. Now be ready is really about deeply understanding your customers. So it's about getting those foundations right of figuring out who your best customers are how to position your product accordingly, how to update your messaging accordingly, how to run customer interviews to find out all of that information about them, and then how to find deep wells of your customers online to start to build a roadmap of what that buying journey looks like. The second B is be helpful, how to be helpful to your dream customers. And as part of that, we show people how to create entertaining and educational content programs that actually stand out from the crowd. So it's really there to be helpful and to start building relationships with your dream customers, even before they're ready to buy from you. The third B is what we call be seen. And that's about how do we actually start to use paid media in a way that's a little bit different to the way that others use it. So we love to use paid media in a way that amplifies all of that helpful, awesome content that you've created in stage two to those dream clients that you'd love to work with. So that's one way of starting to scale those relationships that you're building now. We also talk people through the basics of account-based marketing and how they can use account-based marketing to really narrow their B2B marketing strategy on a handful of accounts and how they can get started on a shoestring budget for that. So there are your three fundamentals. The fourth and fifth B are what we call be better and be the best. And they're about more about building feedback loops into your business, about things like partnerships and how to do more advanced tactics that are normally left to the bigger players. So things like neuromarketing. Now, where we're at in our current journey for the B2B playbook, we're about 55 episodes in and we're just at the end of be seen. So I think by the time we get through the whole five B's framework, we'll probably be around a hundred episodes. Oh, wow. So, and how long was that? When did you guys start the podcast? Well, we started well, August a year ago. So we've been doing it about 13 months. Yeah. And 
How does the incubator play into the podcast? Yeah, so, well, it does. The incubator is for the marketers that have really bought into our 5Bs framework and actually want to start implementing it in their business. So it's a program where we give people the strategy, the tools, and the resources where they can do it themselves. Now, people can probably get 60, 70% of the information if they want to sit through and listen to every single thing that Kevin and I say on the B2B Playbook podcast for 55 episodes. But if they actually want to start to apply this in their business, it's a program that they can go through, get the strategy, get the tools, get the resources to do it in 12 weeks. And it's everything that Kevin and I would do in-house for a business if we came to work there. So we're really trying to bridge that gap between what should be done in-house versus what should be done externally. So obviously you guys are speaking to a few small businesses, startups. What would you say that you guys have found is like the most common mistake when it comes to B2B marketing strategy? Yeah, I think it really kind of comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of what marketing is. So probably the two that I would pick on is one, there's a real focus on capturing demand and not investing in creating demand. So when I say capturing demand, in a particular market, there's normally about 3 to 5% of people in that market who are ready to buy a product or service like yours right now. Now, most marketers are competing in that pool of people who are ready to buy right now. And they compete by running ads on platforms like Google Ads, Captera, G2, you know, running ads for searches like CRM software for sales pricing. So really high intent, lower funnel, targeting people who are buy, ready to buy right now. And they're not investing in creating demand. So actually driving desire uh, for people to buy your product before they're even ready to buy it. The second one that I see from a lot of marketers is just getting stuck in sales enablement roles. And as I said, I think it really comes down to that fundamental misunderstanding of what marketing is. I mean, we are here to drive desire and to really motivate the market to actually purchase our product. And to do that, we have to find ways to build relationships with people before they're ready to buy. So if we're just running Google ads, targeting people who are ready to buy our product right now, or we're making pretty brochures, we're not doing that. We're not driving any desire. We're just capturing what is currently out there right now. And the hardest part, Jacob, is I know from speaking to these marketers that most of them don't have time to do the things, things outside of those activities, right? So that's why it's so unfair when pipeline and revenue is down and then the executive team points the finger at marketing. They go, hey, marketing, what's going on? Why is our pipeline down? Why is our revenue down? So it's, it's a really, really tough situation. And I've been trying to figure out who to blame. <laughs> and I think a lot of it does come from the marketing technology companies. And there's a lot of agencies out there who are guilty of this too. They're the ones who are making business operators think that marketing is just an on switch, that everything can be automated and that everything can be scaled to infinity, which just absolutely isn't the case. So yeah, that's probably the most common mistakes I see. And they're actually really, really big challenges. When you're thinking about the demand generation versus demand capture What's your, like your typical recommendation for a business in terms of how they allocate their time and also allocate their spend towards those two areas? Is there like a sweet spot that most people should think about or is it just completely down to the type of business? Yeah, look, there's no hard and fast rule and it definitely depends on a number of factors, right? So stage of growth as a company, whether you're in a really highly competitive market or you're creating a new category entirely, so there isn't that demand currently for the product or service that you have because it's, it's something that's totally new in the market. I would say that if you're in the latter, in the new category, so you need to start creating demand, well, then there's no existing demand to actually capture. I mean, sure, you can start by testing serving ads for keywords that might be somewhat related to your product, but it's still going to take a lot of education to win those, those potential customers over. For those kinds of business, you know, you probably want to start out with an 80-20 split between creation and capture, where you definitely want to lean into demand creation 
test capture with about 20% of your budget and just see if that's starting to work for you. Personally at pickup, we've probably learned that the hard way as well. So initially we, we went all demand capture and now we've flipped it on its head and we're going to do a bunch of content creation, educational pieces and all that sort of stuff to really generate some demand. So I was actually going to ask you that question because you are somewhat in your category, right? But I imagine that if you're competing in that demand capture area, there's a lot of big players in the space that are bidding on probably quite similar keywords. So I was going to ask how you're competing in that capture space, if at all. We are quite niche in what we do because we're not traditional removalist and we're not a traditional courier company and we're not a traditional junk removal company, but we do parts of all those services. So we have found that demand capture side, Google Ads, Facebook, we do get a lot of inquiries or calls that aren't relevant. So it's sort of like wasted ad spend. So yes, it's a lesson that you learn and um, we're investing in the demand generation now. So we're hoping that's a sort of will pay off in the near future. Well, yeah. I mean, look, if, if you took that to an agency, first thing that they'd recommend you do is jump into Google ads, capture a bunch of intent, and then they'll say, oh, look, people might not be ready buy right now. So let's just spend some money on remarketing campaigns and educate them over time. But at the end of the day, if those people didn't have the intent to get to use your product, then that could be completely wasted money because those people might never need a solution like yours. The situation just described about the marketing agency, that's pretty much exactly what <laughs> happened with us. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did do a bit of content creation and a few little educational pieces here and there, but the vast majority of the spend was dedicated to the demand capture side. And, you know, we learned within a couple of months that, Hey, this isn't working anywhere as well as we hoped it would. And now we've had to shift focus to the demand generation, which we should have been doing six months ago. Yeah. Is what it is. It is what it is. <laughs> it absolutely takes time and it's no knock on demand capture, right? I mean, if you're in a market that already has some demand, as really most products do have, very often for those businesses, that initial growth target is really reached by capturing demand. And what I'll say to marketers and businesses, look, if that demand capture channel is profitable and the market is actually large enough, I have no problem with businesses allocating at least 50% of their budget to demand capture. But look, historically, we know that that capture space, let's just say Google Ads, for example, is going to continue to get more and more competitive. So naturally, it's going to become less profitable over time. The pool becomes smaller. So that's why I would say, look, at least try and invest 20% of your time and money in creating demand. So one day when your cost per acquisition is going up, you know, your pipeline starts drying up, marketers don't get caught with their pants around their ankles when people are saying, well, what's going on? So as I said, really depends on the types of business, but absolutely both should be investing in creating demand. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> so in terms of the, the B2B marketing side, was there a reason that yourself and Kevin went down the, the B2B marketing route versus not going B2C or direct to consumer? Yeah, I mean, we really saw that there was just an opportunity there. Being agency side, we saw that it was really being underserviced initially, which is really what piqued our interests initially. On the B2C side, we thought that there was a real obsession with scale and platforms. So we could see things like AI playing a much bigger role there. And then the more we got into B2B, we saw it was about relationships and strategy. And so we thought, well, it's going to be a lot harder for robots and AI to replace relationships and strategy. That's where we want to be long-term. We don't want to be on the tools long-term. Let's focus on that. And then to be honest, once we got into it, we just completely fell in love with it because it is so people-based. And we have done a complete 180, I guess. You know, we were so bought into the performance marketing world so bought into using AI products to help scale. And now we just keep things as simple as possible. And we talk about really basing your marketing on people, not platforms. And I think B2B is really well suited to that. I've certainly found that uh, 
there is a gap in, in that B2B marketing agency or marketing product. Because when we went to, to market to look for agencies originally, this is probably six months ago. Yeah. Most of them, are oh, we only deal with e-commerce or that side. And I would assume, and maybe you can fill me in and give us your opinion on it, but it's because a lot of that stuff can be automated. Would that be a fair assumption? Yeah, absolutely. And it's like cookie cutter type approach. Yeah, a lot of e-com can be run through more more cookie cutter type approaches, definitely. If you want to do B2B well, it's so fundamentally about relationships that if that person is working agency side, the agency should basically be charging you the cost of a full-time employee because I think that that's what that employee should be doing. A marketer's job is to help start to build relationships at scale. And there's absolutely no value in that relationship being with an agency as opposed to someone in-house. So look, don't, don't get me wrong. There are agencies who are definitely doing a, a terrific job and are well-suited to certain businesses at certain stages. And I've spoken to businesses in the B2B space in the US who do charge retainers of you know minimum 25K a month because they are effectively assigning a couple full-time staff to servicing a particular client. So they're doing the work that actually needs to be done and charging accordingly for it. Whereas a traditional agency, you would get two hours from all these different other people and they're working on probably 30 businesses. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the nature of it, right? Is all the agencies... And they never really get to learn your business. That's right. And even if they did learn the business... I think just too much value can die with the agency, like whether it's insights that are coming from how content is performing, DMs that are coming through LinkedIn, through a company page, you know, particular people who are engaging with content who could become great partners for the business, like all those opportunities are missed. And those are the things that I think are actually so important, particularly earlier on in a business. What's something most B2B marketers are not doing today that you think they should be doing? Yeah, I'd say the biggest one is not really tracking the true impact of their activities. So if they're generating leads, then what's the quality of those leads? You know, chat to your sales staff, are those leads turning into opportunities? And of those opportunities, how many are actually closing? So we can start to see, okay, if leads is our KPI, which it shouldn't be, but if leads is our KPI, are the leads that we're driving actually driving uh, profit for the business or not? So trying to flip the funnel and start with the goal of revenue and work backwards. That's what I would really look at. The other things that I'd love to see more B2B marketers doing is, of course, carving out time for demand creation, not just capture. And we've really touched on why that is. And I think the third thing that I'm becoming more passionate on uh, talking about is just building, a. people call it a personal brand. I would say just build out your network a bit more, jump on platforms like LinkedIn, go and connect with people there. It's an awesome place to learn. And it's amazing what relationships with people that you meet on the internet can do for you. And once you start to put your thoughts out there and commit to doing that, it really just gives you such an awesome safety net. And you don't have to do that to, you know, try and run your own business one day. But if you just have those thoughts out there, then it gives you almost a safety net in terms of if you wanted to jump across to another job. If you become an evangelist for your brand, well, it doesn't matter whether you're in sales, whether you're in marketing, if you become a revenue generating asset for that business, when times are tough, they're not going to get rid of you. So that's something that I would really encourage people to start doing. So I've heard you talk a lot about LinkedIn in the past, and that's sort of where your focus for the B2B podcast, the incubator is obviously yourself personally, what's a... Uh... Why do you think LinkedIn is the platform that suits you guys best? Yeah, it really suits us both because, I mean, that is exactly where our target listeners and people who can be part of the B2B incubator are. That's where a lot of them are hanging out. It's a great platform because I don't have to post more than once a day on it to get the reach that I want. It's a great platform because I can actually pull people into my network 
by adding them, strategically connecting with people. I don't have to wait for them to follow me. And it's an amazing place right now where there's just so many great influential people to learn from and connect with. And that's the space where our dream customers are hanging out. So it's definitely the place to be for us. Well, that's where I found you. I think someone, um, one of my connections had liked one of your posts and it looked interesting. So I looked through it and that's, that's how I started listening to your podcast. So obviously it works. (laughs) There there you go. Yeah. I mean, look, I know of course, like marketers are everywhere. We're on TikTok, probably Instagram. So there was a, a range of other platforms that they're hanging out. So then I looked beyond that and, you know, I thought, okay, which one are we most likely to be able to get the best buy-in from people on? And we really thought that LinkedIn was the place to do that. And in terms of creators on the platform to eyeballs, there's far less creators than there are eyeballs compared to other platforms. You know, obviously you can get a bit more reach on TikTok if you jump on there now, that'll change one day. But, you know, there's no way of really guaranteeing that you're reaching marketers there or the right kinds of marketers. I mean, we just don't want to reach marketers either. Like I strategically pull people into my network who are B2B marketers in businesses from, you know, one to 50 employees in Australia, because that's what I want my listener base and my market to be. There's a hot tip. Go to where your market is, like be on the platforms that your market's where your market lives, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Figure out where it is they're hanging out and go there. All right. So we might switch gears a little bit. We talked about LinkedIn. Obviously, that's probably your top online tool of resource, I'd imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In terms of your productivity, I know you said maybe you're not as productive as your offside of Kevin, but what's something that you've implemented recently to try and, you know, really improve your productivity? Yeah. I really just in advance of the week, planning out what my non-negotiables are for each day that week. So it's normally just one thing for every day and I normally do it on a Sunday and they're just, I guess, those rocks that aren't really allowed to move. And then everything else beyond that is just a bonus. So look, that that keeps me more focused. It also doesn't make me feel so guilty when if I want to leave the desk at 5 o'clock, 5.30, whatever it might be. Because I mean, as you know, Jacob, right, like when you're running a small business, there is literally an infinite number of things that you could be doing. And there's just a a recipe for disaster, I think, if we don't manage that. Yeah, you could certainly, if you wanted to, or if you're capable, work 120 hours a week. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wouldn't be very good for your health, but... That's right. And I'm not convinced that you have to do that to build a business that's sustainable. I mean, for us, we're all about building sustainable businesses. And so if we can't do that ourselves, it's probably not too genuine. Yeah. So it sounds like for you, it's just getting those super high value tasks or things ticked off to keep moving everything in that forward direction. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Those little niggling things can wait till tomorrow. They have to. Yeah. I mean, do you have a a similar approach? What do you find works for you? I put everything in my Google calendar. It, looks like a dog's breakfast and it's got all it's all color coded and there's not many gaps in there but that's just the way of me that i find using a calendar works but all my tasks all my events all my meetings all the to-dos just run out of google so i find that's best for me yeah nice i recently started i mean i do use google calendar but i started writing it out on a like a monday through sunday notepad as well it was actually a matthew mcconaughey video on tiktok that inspired me to start writing down even really menial tasks (laughs) because there's something so gratifying about just being able to cross stuff off. So if I'm feeling like, you know, maybe the day's off to a slow start, I'll even write something down like, you know, make yourself a coffee, read your emails and literally write them down and tick them off one by one. And it just helps me maintain a bit of momentum into the day. On a physical piece of paper. Just writing it down, ticking it off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Give it a go. It For me, it feels really, really good. <laughs> it feels great. I was looking at my handwriting the other day when I was putting some stuff on the grocery list and yeah, maybe I need to write a little bit more often because it's something that we don't do these days. Yeah, oh, look, mine is absolutely shocking. <laughs> it is awful. But look, when I 
posted on LinkedIn. People don't seem to mind. My sister's a graphic designer and she does all the branding for the B2B playbook, the B2B incubator and some of our clients. And she's mortified anytime I post something with my handwriting on it. But I say to her, Katerina, look, people don't seem to care. It's fine. <laughs> They're not coming to you for your uh, handwriting expertise. No, 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 absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's a piece of advice you'd give to someone who's starting out in the marketing industry? Like if you could go back in time, it's a young George, what would you tell him? Yeah, I think... I mean, you're still young anyway, but still. Yeah, no. <laughs> I think going and connecting with people that I guess are similar to you, but just a few steps ahead of the journey that you're on, people that you find relatable in the marketing world or whatever it is that you feel passionate about. and yeah, reach out to them, start to learn from them, build your network. I hated it when people would tell me to build my network. I actually hated LinkedIn when I first got into it. I just thought it was the biggest wank in the world. And then I realized that it was actually this incredibly vibrant community of people who literally just want to help each other. And that's when it became such an awesome place to learn. And if there are people out there who do have their like their own aspirations of building a business one day, well, I would say the least risky way to do that is to start by building an audience first. And that all begins by connecting with like-minded people. So definitely connect with people on LinkedIn, wherever it is, start to educate yourself. And if you are super passionate about marketing, nothing teaches you more about marketing than launching your own little side hustle and watching your own hard-earned dollars go down the drain. That'll teach you how to do marketing better than anyone else. Don't I know that all too well. <laughs> Think back to the marketing subjects that I did at uni with my MBA and just try and apply that today. And none of it's relevant at all. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, that's just with so many things, right? Unless you're going to be a a doctor really like nothing prepares you for what the real world application of that degree is going to be things like customer acquisition costs lifetime value all these acronyms that you learn once you really get your head stuck into marketing can't recall learning any of that when i was doing my mba it's it's crazy yeah perhaps it's a little bit too theoretical i mean i haven't done one myself but you know once you get out if you're in a business context well you need to understand marketing in that business context so questions like revenue customer acquisition cost lifetime value you know become super super important yeah that's it's one piece of advice i'd give to anyone if you want to learn about business just go start one because that's the, the best way to, to learn or at the very least go work at a startup or a small business because no amount of study will prepare you for what you actually need to know yeah totally and look it doesn't have to be a big moonshot. It doesn't have to be like you print X, like I tried to do with my brother and my cousin. Like looking back on that, I wish we tried something much, much smaller to begin with. But hey, we didn't know any better. Learned to tump from it. But listeners, you don't have to do that. So just going back on your point earlier, you were talking about networking. Is there anyone sort of who you've networked with or who's become a big influence on you in the marketing space or even in another area of your life that sort of who would say is, is your biggest influence on who you are today? I wouldn't say there's one particular person. We had Rand Fishkin, the co-founder of Moz on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. And I think the episode's actually coming out on, on Monday and he jumped onto a podcast with us and, you know, we're not that big. We're pretty niche. Rand has hundreds of thousands of followers. He's a seriously influential guy in the space. And when I sort of asked him why he thinks he was so successful, it turns out that he just did things that didn't scale for a really long time and just went really long on being helpful. And I think he's kind of proof that nice guys don't finish last. I mean, he built Moz over 17 years of just being helpful in that space just by giving so much knowledge away and it was wonderful to see that good things come to those who wait and he's living proof of it yeah i was listening to um something alex homozy 
was talking about the other day, and which resonates uh, with what you were just saying there. Of if you do something long enough, it's pretty much a ninety nine percent chance that you'll be successful. If like on a long enough time horizon, so it's just about getting in the reps. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, be patient, be helpful, be kind. I guess they're the three things we try and live by. And I think that de-risks and de-stresses a lot of your business life. So just don't try and be in too much of a rush. I would say the other really influential person has been a guy called Timbo Reid. He hosts the Small Business Big Marketing podcast in Australia. It's a really well-known marketing podcast. It's not necessarily B2B specific. I've just listened to that for a number of years. I continued listening to it while I was on the bus early in the morning or late at night going into the law firm. And it's really what kept my love and interest for marketing alive while I was doing something that I hated. And he actually has a book called The Boomerang Effect. And it's all about why being helpful is the key to marketing. And I would say that he's the inspiration behind a lot of what we're doing. So he kept the marketing flame burning while you were hating life as a lawyer, it sounds like. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Hearing him have all these awesome guests on his show who you know, weren't necessarily running like big businesses, but ones with a lot of potential, you know, hearing an Aussie voice as well, you know, he's an Australian and hearing a lot of Aussies come on the show. I don't know, I guess it's like that advice where I said, try and find someone who's like you, but a few steps ahead because you're going to find them so much more relatable. So maybe something to do with the fact that Timbo was Aussie and had a whole lot of Aussie businesses on his show is what really kept my interest. And that's why I would love to really try and nail down this Australian and involve Aussies as much as possible. Just going back to the the B2B incubator and the playbook, is that your goal there just to focus on the Australian market? Do you guys have any big lofty goals for the next five years? What's sort of the plan there? I would love to nail down the Australian market initially. I think it's you know a smaller market that perhaps does require a bit of education first. I think we are a little bit behind what's going on in the the US and perhaps Europe in terms of demand generation returning to that mindset. But I would just love to, to try and operate here as much as possible. I do find that we have a lot of natural interest from in the States and the UK as well. I mean, that's always going to happen with the States, right? Is I don't know if it's because of their population size, maybe because they don't have as much of a social safety net but they're always looking to improve themselves as much as possible. So anything that's to do with self-help, like the B2B playbook or a program that they pay for to go through, like the incubator, it just seems a lot easier to attract in. But I'm certainly not giving up on the Aussie market. As I said, this is, this is something that I want to be doing for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. That's interesting you say that. So you're saying basically the American market in terms of people wanting to join is like the conversion would be a lot higher than the Australian businesses. Yeah. 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 That's correct. Currently at the moment, we have a lot more natural interest from the Americans. And I think part of that is also because, you know, we're essentially selling demand generation strategy. I mean, we call it sustainable B2B marketing. To be honest, when we started the B2B playbook, I hadn't even heard of demand generation. We just thought that this was good, sustainable B2B marketing strategy. And it turns out that they're completely the same thing. But there's just been so much noise over there with guys like Chris Walker, you know, pounding the pavement for the last couple of years that there is that change already. Whereas in Australia, there probably isn't quite as much awareness around it, which is why when I find people like yourself who get it, like, you know, you find that that immediate bond and you feel that connection with that other person. Yeah, it's a really interesting insight. It's strange as to why Australians wouldn't be up for it. Maybe it's an ego thing that I can do it better myself or maybe it's just a lack of education. So I suppose that's the whole point of the podcast is to educate people on, you know, there is a better way to do things. Yeah, I think it does come down to that education. Also, you know, it's a really hot market for marketers at the moment. If you're a marketer right now, like a B2B marketer, there's jobs flying around everywhere. And so maybe they don't have that trigger, that impetus to actually want to improve what they're doing. Whereas in the US, you know, there's a way bigger population 
there's probably way more competition for jobs. And that's why, like, you know, the, the cream is going to rise to the top there, I would say, probably a little bit faster. So, yeah, look, it's going to be a longer journey to educating marketers here. And I would say, look, to be honest, probably the majority of marketers in the US also really aren't on this demand generation movement. We just live in our little LinkedIn bubble, little echo chamber. The reality is most people haven't shifted their mindset back towards this, but I'm bullish on it. And that's why I'm committing to it over the long term, because you know what? It's just good fundamental B2B marketing principles. That's got to be worth something. Definitely is, mate. And keep going your hardest because you're, you're doing an amazing job on the podcast and also the incubator. It's a, it's definitely a, a valuable product that you've got there and you need to keep pushing it to as many people as you can because there's definitely definitely a thirst for it out there, whether or not people know that they need to do it. Oh, thank you. And look, I really appreciate you being you know one of our early supporters and you're always out there with us. So we're very thankful to each and every person who I guess is giving us the time of day right now. No problems, mate. Happy to be a big supporter. Did you have any questions for me today? Yeah. I mean, look, my main one was again, you know, around how you are looking at creating demand, like where are you spending your time and resources? I mean, is there a focus on partnerships because that's a way of, I guess, tapping into demand or trying to educate a particular group of people who might be in market for a product or service like yours, but don't actually know exactly what it is? Yeah. So at the moment, we're completely rebuilding our tech stack and releasing that to the market early next year in January. And to align with that, the, the partnership side is definitely something that will push. Our product probably isn't ready to push to you know big retailers and big commercial customers just yet. But once that is, that will definitely be a part of it. As we spoke about before, we've sort of come to the realization that demand capture, whilst that is going to always be a part of our marketing strategy, it shouldn't be the the whole focus. So we've probably turned it on its head the last month and we're starting to invest really big into content. And that's predominantly going to be video across TikTok, Instagram, and also some stuff on LinkedIn for the B2B side as well, because we've found that no one in the space in any of the niches that we play in either here or overseas do any content like there's another company in the us that's quite similar to us called dolly they got acquired for i think it was like 30 million they're across about 30 states in the us but you look at their socials they've got no content whatsoever so i think there's a real gap for us to sort of dominate that space yeah i mean it's an enormous opportunity for every business. I mean, like, you know, in almost every industry, there's maybe one company who's actually doing it. As you've seen, like with the right approach and the right frameworks, it doesn't have to be a full-time job to do it either and to make really good pointed content. And there's definitely a lot of demand out there and there's a tiny, tiny supply. So I think it's awesome that you guys are leaning into that. Yeah, really excited to see over the next few months sort of how that plays out and see what the, the return on investment looks like. The demand capture, whilst good, it's not sustainable for that to be your only source of getting customers or your main source. Yeah, and look, I mean, this stuff takes time, right? To see a good demand creation program take effect. Once you have, a, I guess, a program in full speed, then it generally takes like one and a half to two sales cycles, like at least of educating the market to really start to see that change that change in growth. And so you just got to look for, I guess, those leading indicators in the meantime to know that you're on the right track. Well, it's kind of why we wanted to start it now because our new product is coming out in January. So it'll give us a good three, four, five months of runway to see what works and test a bunch of different channels and then really focus on the ones that are working for us. Yeah, awesome. Great, great plan. Oh, we're very much looking forward to seeing what comes out. Yeah, well, hopefully it's good stuff. <laughs> so lastly, where can people find you and the B2B Playbook and the Incubator online? Yeah, well, look, I live on LinkedIn. So just look me up, George Kudinaris. Maybe you can just chuck that in the show notes because nobody can spell my last name. 
You can find the B2B Playbook at the b2bplaybook.com and the B2B Incubator at the b2bincubator.com. Lovely. Did you want to give a plug to Kevin as well? From what I can hear on the podcast, he's not uh, as visible as you are online. No, he's not. He's not. Kevin is a much more private individual. I think I will get him around to being more of a public figure eventually. But yeah, for now, look, if people reach out to him, he's super lovely and he does have a different skill set to me. It's definitely worth reaching out to him and he's always happy to reply and engage with any listener or anyone who wants to have a chat, but he just won't post as much, old Kevin. Yeah. Unless he's deleting his photos, then he probably won't respond to you. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's number one on the priority. That's sacred time. That's, that's one of his rocks that doesn't get moved. <laughs> well, this was awesome, mate. Thank you for joining today and helping us level up. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Really appreciate your time, Jacob. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, George. Oh, 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 oh,